So I will begin with safe and effective care environment for for infection control. This will be for safety infection control. Um, so we can go through it and complete it. So we look at asepsis. Asepsis is the absence of microbes uh, in our environment when we are performing procedures. Hair hygiene is a very good behavior to reduce microbes in our environment. Now we have two kinds of asepsis. So we have the medical asepsis and we have the surgical asepsis. Now for medical asepsis, medical asepsis, this reduces bacteria or micro, it reduces, but oh, that's a microbes. This will reduce microbes for medical asepsis. It reduces micro. Why for surgical asepsis, surgical asepsis eradicates micro. This eradicates micro. It does not reduce, it eradicates micro, meaning it gets rid of micro in its totality. For medical, it reduces micro. Like when you're washing your hands, you are not killing all the micros in your hands because there are normal fluorides around there. So when you are doing hand washing, no matter what you use to hand wash, you are reducing microbes. In the case of surgical asepsis, when we do a surgical scrub before surgery, we are like eradicating every other micro that, that are found within the field or within the environment that was supposed to perform that surgical procedure. So that becomes surgical asepsis. Now, there are techniques we use in these different uh, asepsis. For surgical asepsis, we use sterile techniques. So this sterile technique, sterility, is linked with surgical asepsis, just so we know that. Now, um, there are other things I'm going to go over. Let's remember that when you are washing hands, you make sure you rub your hands for at least 15 seconds. That is the ideal time. If your hand does not have any uh, visible dirt in your hand, like visible blood fluid or other uh, internal body fluid, it's 15 seconds. You wash your hands clean, lather soap in your hands, interlace your hands, rub your hands vigorously from your wrists to your fingertips. That's how you wash your hand. Wash your nails and other things and wipe your hands. That is, uh, you are just cleaning the hand. That is clean, uh, clean hand washing techniques. Now, if your hands are sore and you can see visible dirt in your hands or your hands came in contact with a body fluid, a body substance, for that, you have to use up to two, 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 or two minutes to wash and clean your hands. Just so we know that. Um, then my concern under here, um, what is the sterile field? How do we manage a sterile field become my concern? So I want for us to know what are the do's and don'ts of a sterile field. There are a lot of things under here, but a lot of them, you already know them. That is how to wash your hands, the procedure. You know that already. 
better stay if you don't know that go over a um and make sure you know them well because in the end class you have a procedure that you have to do drag and drop procedure like for hand washing keeping your hands clean it comes as drag and drop in the ankle so it is incumbent upon us to make sure to do that procedure over and over and again to be able to exhibit or to be able to like a comfortably perform that procedure in the ankles or do use a computer mouse and uh, be able to like a uh, drag and drop it appropriately from the step one to the last step so the, you know, to know that do it at home do hand washing to know it over and over do not read to cramp it if you read the camera procedure you cannot demonstrate that procedure with confidence if you demonstrate it over and over at home you are able to demonstrate it with confidence or comfortably so like procedure like a hand washing dry powder inhaler uh a uh, 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 meter dose inhaler like uh using how to use an incentive spiral meters all those are all different nursing procedures that Sometimes the enter asks us to perform the procedure in the end class through drag and drop questions. So in order to know them well, demonstrate them more to be comfortable with them. Now, um, how can we maintain a sterile field? In sterile field, we do not cough in a sterile field. Once you cough in a sterile field, that sterility has been broken. So coughing, we do not cough. We do not cough. Over a sterile field, when we cough, the sterile field is not sterile anymore. That's number one thing. Another thing is we should avoid talking over a sterile field. Once you talk in a surgical room over a surgical over a patient, that particular field is is is, is already contaminated. If you do not have masks on or something to protect your mouth, because guess what, your breath when you breathe it out, you are breathing out a lot of microbes from your from your GI tract. The GI tract is not sterile. Our GI tract is not sterile. There are so many dirty bacteria or deadly bacteria that live within the GI tract. So when you are talking, you are coughing, you are sneezing, you are breathing over a sterile feed, that feed is not considered sterile anymore. It is definitely dirty. It needs to be changed. Now, another thing you want to do is like, you want to avoid movement, vigorous movement or the sterile because what you are wearing, the atmosphere contains different bacteria that, that might find it that, that might find their, their ways into the sterile room so once you in there you cannot move over a sterile field move around back to back it is not necessary if you do that you have broken the rules of sterility you should refrain from touching supplies even if you have you are doing a surgical procedure and then we open the sterile drip and we saw uh, a kidney basin a kidney basin is right here you have a little cup that is right here you have uh, a scissor that is on the other side. You have all these things here. They all keep from a sterile field. They offer a sterile field and they have been exposed. Now, we cannot keep touching them despite they are all sterile. Touching them too many times will expose them to being infected and will also expose our hands to being infected. And if we are using the same hand, the glove hand to touch the patient, we are going to also be uh, infecting the patient with different microbes so we do not touch so many things in the sterile field we also make sure um our gloves our gown should be clean it should be sterile we should open it and wear them we should not sneeze when we have them we should not talk when we have those things on if we do those things while we while we are in the sterile environment the environment is uh, definitely not sterile anymore it has become contaminated 
So we want to make sure to maintain sterility when we are at the point of providing any need for a patient that requires sterility. Um, only sterile items may be in the sterile field. If anything in there is not sterile, you do not want to put it in there. Now, I'm going to say this again. It's, uh, we are saying that only sterile items, only sterile items, sterile items may be, may be, this word may be, is an endless strategy question about the endless. Maybe, maybe it's not specific. When you use the word maybe in a, in a given statement, it leaves space for escape. Now, also only is also an endless word that we need to be careful of when getting the endless. Now, these words are called absolute words. The absolute words in the endless when they appear in a question, when they appear in an answer, we have to take it very keenly and take our time to analyze the question. Take for example, let me start with maybe. Um, they say that we only sterile items may be in a sterile field, meaning there might be other items in that sterile field that is not sterile. There, there might be. So maybe means might. It is not a matter of must. Maybe means might. There might be. So in the endless, if the endless ask you, um, while pe 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 performing a surgical procedure, if an atom is not sterile, it should not be in the sterile field. True or false? Let us, let, let us say it that way. It will be false because the cell may be. So even in the sterile, in, in the sterile room, there might be other atoms that are not sterile. Take for example, you, you cannot cover your whole body. There will be portions of the body that, that is not covered. Those portions of the body are not sterile. They will still be part of the surgery. You're, there are a lot of things you are doing there. Sometimes you are wearing the uh, glasses. You are sweating. Somebody is next to you wiping your sweat. Your sweat is not sterile. Your sweat contains sodium and other bodily fluid. Those things are not sterile. So because of that, uh, that in the, uh, uh, within the sterile field, everything in the sterile field are not sterile, but majority will be sterile. And we might have a lot of things that might not be sterile. Example is the bed that lying now. Is that bed sterile? No. The bed is clean, it's wet, it's spray, it's decontaminated, but it is not a sterile bed. So there are things that will be in that surgical room that might not be sterile. And that's why they will leave these or uh, these prepositions within the endless phrases to be able to have an escape route. So in the endless, you see the word may be, be careful with this word. Another one is only. Only is an absolute word in the English. When you see the word only with a question, take time hard to answer the question. Take for example, they said uh, only two patients, only two patients are allowed on the admission unit. Or what they use the word this word only. It means that something is not okay, and if it is the wrong answer. If we are picking the wrong answer, most of the time in the end class, the only any word I have only to it, any question I have only as the answer might be the correct answer. If we are to choose correct answers, this this only will not be ever the correct answer. It will always be the wrong answer. Only, ever, never. These are absolute words you want to the end class. Never. 
Now, never mean there is no means for escape or supposition. So when you use the word never in the sentence, it makes it wrong. If you're looking for the right answer, if you're looking for the correct answer, if you're, if you're looking for the wrong answer, it is it will be the wrong answer in 99% of the NCAS question. We'll do some questions on that and we'll and we'll see it. And those that have been with us, they've seen that we've done a lot of questions on that. So we're gonna we're gonna keep pointing them out so you can pick them out at this stage. Now, then um in the sterile field, the outer wrapping one inch of the sterile drip that is used to package the sterile items within that enclosed cloth. It is not sterile. One inch of the tip of the sterile field is not sterile because it is the tip you hold and pull out the drips. So in that situation, it is not sterile. So that portion is not sterile. So let's understand that. Now another thing is, um, in inside that particular, uh, in that cloth, there will be or uh, in the kit, there are other things in that kit that are sterile, and there are other things in there that are not sterile. So it is not everything that falls in that drop or uh, of the of the cloth using to provide the sterility is sterile. Now another thing is. The glove you're gonna put on, the sterile glove, the outer portion of those gloves are not sterile. And we take them into the sterile room for surgical purposes. Guess what? We take them at the time we're carrying they are not sterile, but what is in it is sterile. So it is not everything that is in this in the uh, that in that is in there is sterile. Some are in there, they are clean, they are not sterile. Now we want to make sure. You want to touch sterile material with only sterile gloves. If you must pick up a scissor from in the tray, in the sterile tray, the glove you are wearing should be a sterile glove. It should be sterile at the point you're going to pick up something from in there. If it is not, those things in there have been contaminated. You want to make sure that a sterile object cannot go below the waist and it cannot go above um. The chest area so sterility is maintained from our shoulder to our waist anything below the waist is not sterile anymore anything above the shoulder it is not sterile so if we pick up a sterile club from in the sterile tray this is how we should hold it we cannot carry it up like this it is contaminated we cannot carry it down below our waist it is already contaminated. So we should keep between our waist to our shoulder. Anything above the chest is nasty right anymore. Just so just so we uh, we know that. Now, there are some materials um that might come in contact with non-sterile material. Now, um sometimes within sometimes sometimes this happen, but you want to make sure at any point in time when those materials are deemed to be not sterile, change them. There is no if about it. If you have to perform a surgery and like water fluid drops in that particular sterile field, that particular field has become uh, contaminated. It is not sterile. It needs to be changed. We do not allow fluid. Do not cross. Do not reach across or above a sterile field. Do not go across. Do not cross the sterile field with anything in your hand, you cross it over the sterile field or you go above this level, 
that material, those things in therapy have been destroyed. They are not sterile anymore. They have been contaminated. You do not turn your back to a sterile field. If you do that, the sterile field is not sterile anymore. It is considered contaminated. Now, the reason is you might turn your back. Something might happen while your back is turned. You're not seeing that. So the fact that you turn your back, it makes it contaminated. Sometimes even the way you turn, vigorous turning away from the sterile field, can also drive microbes toward the field. So if you do that, the field is not sterile anymore. You hold items to add to a sterile field at a minimum of six inches above the field. So the minimum distance between a sterile field and an atom is six inches. Anything above six inches, it's not, it should not go in a sterile field. Anything below this, it should, it should be the distance from, from, from a step from the, let's say you pick up, pick up a scissor to bring to the abdomen to do a C-section or a knife, it should be six inches between you, your finger that holding it, and the body of the patient that's going to be pierced. Or else it is not sterile anymore. Now, the sterile field is always waterproof. The wrapper that is used to wrap around the sterile items in, in that field is always waterproof. Now, but when it is soil, when it is soil, it's, it has become non-sterile. When fluid drops or any drops get into that particular field, it is it is also non-sterile. Keep all items, all areas of the sterile field to be dry. If it is wet, change it. Discard any package that is torn apart. Even if the lid is torn apart, even if it is a piece of it is torn apart, it is not considered good. It should be discarded. You should send for new ones. You also make sure that uh, any puncture or wet sterile kit is not to be used anymore. It, it has gotten contaminated. Whether you saw it, whether you saw those contaminants or not, once it is wet or it is broken, there's a break in its integrity. It is not to be used anymore. Just so we know that. Any question on these sterile items? Any question on them? Now, um, then we'll take a look at uh, um, infection control. We're still going, we're still on infection control, infection control. On our here, specifically, I'll look at some other important things about infection. What are certain words that we expect in the end class when it comes to infection control? We, I, we, we were just, now we were. We've been hit with the, with, the, with the biggest infection of the 21st century, uh, wherein we have so many lives that we are lost, uh, that have been lost. And uh, we need to be keen on infection. Infection is, is control for the end class. Because nowadays, there are a lot of questions are coming in about infection is control. Now, Infection occurs uh, when there's a presence of a microorganism or pathogens that exists in our environment that enters our body through a lot of chains. Chains mean we have different chains of infection. You have the reservoir, the infection agent, mode of transmission, the entry, the portal of entry, uh, mode of exit, all those things are called a chain of infection. 
Now, I'm not concerned about these things. I'm not concerned about what I'm talking talk, talking here. I'm not concerned about a few things. Um, I'll be concerned about one, immunity. The kinds of immunity in the ankles. Now, in the ankles, um, we have this immunity. Now, I will talk about the specific ones. For these immunities, um, I will talk about the native or natural immunity and the passive immunity. Now, the reason I discuss these two because they are the they are the they are the pioneer or they are the um, the first two that gave rise to all the other immunity. Now, you have artificial immunity, you have a passive artificial passive inborn. You have different now, but the bare right is to know what is the the the, the, the the natural and what is the passive or artificial immunity now these immunities when it comes to the ankles um you know look at them very well you have the native immunity now give me a second i think i have a a, a more in-depth material that i that, that I downloaded for us to look at them specifically um let me just go through them so we can have a better idea on what we are doing let me just get to my computer let me get down let me get pulling out so there are different kinds of immunity um that we want to make sure that we have ideas on them not just knowing them a definition but we want to make sure we look at the examples of these immunities it is very much important to look at different examples, different case scenario about these immunities so that we can have um, a lot to look at. Uh, give me a second. I'm going to get them. Uh... Now, for the native or natural immunity, um, you have it like a... Um, the one that you have that no one gave that to you, meaning you had it on your own. You went through with it and you start you, you develop it by yourself. You have that. That is the natural ones. The artificial ones is the one you got from outside. Now, but I want to come and be very specific about them so we can look at them one at a time. I keep loading uh, okay all right so let's look at them right in this form we have uh the active and passive immunity okay my computer is still loading so let me okay let's go ahead I'm going to come there during the break. After the break, I will come there and, and, and look at it one at a time. So let's skip this. My computer is still loading. And let's move ahead of something else while we're waiting for the computer to load. Now, I'll look at clients, uh, client safety. Let's look at client safety and home safety when it comes to the ankles. Client and home safety. Now, with client and home safety, 
What is important to know about these things? Sometimes you go to the end class, your questions you have majority of your question on common sense question on common sense nursing knowledge. Um, sometimes you go to the end class, you have questions on disease condition. So when you are studying and preparing for the end class, you want to look at both common sense and disease oriented question and answer to have an idea on it. Now this will fall on a common sense and that is based that is backed by nursing knowledge. Now, safety from injury is our goal in the hospital. It could be disease condition that might cause injuries. It could be some other physical condition that might cause injury. So our goal is to provide safety for our client as much as possible. So in the end class, when you get to the end class, I always ask my students, when you get to the end class, read the word safety on your paper at the end class. If you have a computer, they'll give you a pencil, and they'll give you a blank sheet, write their safety. Now, the reason why you're writing safety in there because the endless, every endless question gears towards safety, providing safety medium for the patient and the environment they find themselves. Take for example, I got a question in the endless. They asked me, um, the nurse, the nurse received a patient. The nurse got a patient. I'm going to be very just uh, snappy on it. The nurse got a patient um, with. The disease condition called um, azithromatosis. Now, the nurse received a patient with a condition called azithromatosis. What will the nurse do? What will the nurse implement? Implement to make sure to make sure the patient is comfortable. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I have never ever in my life heard of any condition called azithromycosis. I have never seen this in my, in my life. I have never, in all of my life as a nurse, my 10 years plus experience as a nurse, I have never come across a disease called azithromycosis. But guess what? The anchor, the, the anchor does not care whether I have come across it or not. It does not care. As far as, as, far as, as, far as it is concerned, is for me to choose an answer in there and move ahead. Now, because I have never come across this particular disease condition, that does not mean I wouldn't answer this question. I will have to choose one of the answers. Now, let's look at the option. It says, um, move the patient, move the patient um, to the lab. The lab using a higher lift, losing a higher lift instead of two-person, two-person hole. That's A. B says, um, can you see from here? Okay. Also, B says, um, tote the patient or lift the patient, lift the patient to the wheelchair. C says, um, ask your co-worker, ask your co-worker on the unit to remove the patient, to help you remove the patient. And D says, um, call the lab, call the lab, call the lab to come in and check whether the patient can be moved before you take the patient out. Now, you have these four options. Now, but unfortunately, 
you have never seen the disease azithromycosis. You don't know what is it. Now, but there's something called safety. Even if you did not know what this condition is, but you understand safety measure in nursing. Now, among these ones, because of the word safety that I understood to answer the question with safety in the end class, I will eliminate the options with using safety method in my mind. One, um, letting the patient by myself put into the wheelchair, there is no hospital will tell you that. No nursing home, no rehab will say lift a patient. No. In fact, anything above 40 pounds, we cannot lift it by ourselves. We're going to use something, some uh, mechanism to use to lift it. We're going to use some body mechanic. So in this situation, there will be a higher lift. So I cannot lift this patient from the bed because one, he might fall or she might fall. When she falls, what happens? I can get sued for that. That is why medical problem, that, that is a problem in my, that, that is a thought problem. That could be a negligence. So I cannot let this patient. So the fact I cannot let the patient, this let the patient to the wheelchair is wrong. So I cross it out because it is not a good option. It is wrong. Now, let's look at number two. Ask the coworker to, now, even you ask, you got to be two or three to lift a patient, even if you guys are 10, it is not a medical idea. It still puts the patient at risk for fall. So because they are at risk for fall, we are not looking at safety. This will be wrong. So we cross this out. It's wrong. Now, the third one say, call the lab to verify what the patient can be moved from the bed or other thing. This becomes something also, I wouldn't tell because this patient is on the bed. He's not a lab patient and we cannot, we cannot do this test in the patient room. Patient needs to be carried to the lab. So among them, despite I know not or I do not know what is azithromycosis, the fact that one of the options here provides a safe nursing action, which is move the patient to the lab by using a higher lift. Higher lift is recommended to be used in nursing home, in hospital, in home health nursing to move our patient. Because that is that is a, a, a permissible, it is allowed, it meets the nursing standard, I will choose this as my correct answer. Because it talks about safety in this particular question here. Despite, I did not know the meaning of the condition as each of my children. So in the end class, safety plays a major role in the end class. So even if you do not know the condition or the question, look at safety. And this can happen a lot of time in the end class. Sometimes in the end class, you have never seen this topic. And it's going to happen to you because it happens every end class exam. There will be few questions that you have never seen in your life. There will be few options that you have never come across in your life. But guess what? You use the safety method and choose the correct answer. And that's why I want to talk about safety in nursing or uh, in nursing. Any question? Now, providing safety for, for our patient, we should understand all the safety mechanisms that we want to provide for the patient. Now, at times, our nursing materials will not provide all the safety mediums that we can use to provide safety for our patient. Sometimes we use our common sense, but our common sense is not that common because our common sense need to be backed up by nursing idea. Take for example, um, when someone is older and younger children, these individuals, they have problems. When you get older, your bones are not strong, 
your bones are deteriorating in terms of calcium, magnesium, all those uh, minerals that are supposed to keep the bones strong. Your body cannot absorb them like how they were absorbed when you were younger. So because of that, you are at risk for fall, which we all know that. Another one is when you are a baby growing up, a walking child does not have a strong bone. The bones are not calcified. The bones are not calcified or ossified to make children to be very strong. So they are at risk for fall. So we have older patients who are in the geriatric age and younger patients who are below uh, or, or, or child or below school age. They are younger. They are at risk for fall. Just so we know that. Now, so sometimes patients can also be at risk for fall due to what they are using that walking aids. And that's why we have to teach our patients how to use rightly crutches if they have to use crutches, how to use wheelchairs if they have to use wheelchair, how to use our uh, canes, walker. We have to understand how many inches will you place the, the cane when you are walking, when you are walking, when, when, when you have a bad leg. What what angle you place a, a walker when you are walking? How do you climb a stairs with crutches? How do you climb down? As, as stairs with crutches, we have to do that because those are sitting mechanisms that if we don't use them correctly, they can also want to destroy body parts. Like you have the brachial nerve that runs under the armpit. If you give someone to use crutches and that person is not provided with the, with the way in which the crutches should be used, they could, they could destroy the brachial nerve on the armpit because they were not taught how to use the crutches. So we must give them the do's and don'ts about this equipment that will give them to help them to move around. If not, it will cause problem for them. Another one is even the clothing they wear. The clothing can also cause problem, problem for, uh, for them. So we want to make sure that uh, for falls, we, other clients at increased risk for fall um, are individuals who have visual problems, who cannot see well. Now, another thing is we cannot paint the stairs. So you have a stairway coming down into the living room. Now this this is the living room here. Um, the stairways in the in the floor cannot have the same color. So if this stairway is color uh, pink coming down here, we cannot paint the living room floor pink. Pink. I mean, if it is pink and this is pink, the the, the person who is older who cannot see well, they will think that this is, is is another stairs. So they will come down unbalancedly and they will have problem with their hips or their bone might get fracture due to the color of the pin. So the last stairs and the floor should not have the same color. Because when you are older, everything appears in a patient who has older eyes, it looks yellow. Let's remember this color very well. When you are older patient, patient who are geriatrics, they look at everything in the house. The light, everything look in their eyes yellow. So we cannot use this same yellow light to color or to pin things in the house. It is not accepted in the ankles. Just so we know that. Now, another thing is, um, those who have gait and balance problem, cerebral palsy, individuals who have cerebral palsy, who have multiple sclerosis, who have balance problems, who have cognitive dysfunction, those individuals are at risk for fall. And this content will talk about those individuals who have uh, multiple sclerosis, and I even gave you some questions on them to look at them. So you want to look at those things and make sure and understand the nursing intervention. If you did not remember it, it is in the Sanders book. Go back to multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy, seizures. Read the nursing intervention. 
in the end class, when you are reading for the end class, you want to put more time to nursing intervention because in the end class, they will ask us, what would the nurse do? What would the nurse do? Now, that question, what would the nurse do, is best answered within the nursing intervention for all the conditions. If you are reading about endocrine system, you're reading diabetes mellitus, read about nursing intervention for diabetes mellitus. If you are reading about other conditions like other ADH, SIADH condition, read about the nursing intervention. So if you are taking just one time to read those other parts of the book, please take two times to read the nursing intervention because the nursing interventions are where most of our questions comes in the end from uh, for RNs and, and PNs. Another thing we want to also is that on a four risk, um, prevention of client fall is, is a major priority in nursing. We want to prevent them from falling rather than helping them to kill them. Many at times we can prevent fall and then we can take a step fall in the nursing home, in the hospital, and the hospital can be sued for those things. You want to make sure at admission. For fall prevention, you complete all the fall risk assessment. We have a fall risk assessment that would do the patient age, um, how well they are oriented, all those things are, are in there. Um, we want to also make sure we know how to use the call line for the patient. Those ones are honored the patient uh, when the patient is being oriented to the unit, they all fall under there. We want to make sure also to provide regular toileting and orientation for every patient who have cognitive impairment. If they have dementia, if they have uh, delirium, if they have those cognitive impairment disorders, we want to have them oriented at any point in time they are confused. Our goal becomes to orient them, to give them a new orientation. Patients who have those disorders, like dementia, delirium, those cognitive impairment, impairment disorders, we need to, our goal becomes to, get, to, to, to do for them regular orientation. Now, another thing is, we want to make sure we provide adequate lighting in the environment. We orient the patient to the setting to make sure they know how to use all the devices in the area. Place the client at risk, a patient who is at risk for four, we should always put them near the nursing station because when they bring that call line, when they shout, we hear them. So those are risks for four. They should always be placed near the nursing station. That's why we need also those are risks for four. They are always around like few feet from the nursing station in the hospital because they are risks. So when they come out, we'll see them. Even at the nursing home, they should all be placed the first or two or three doors. From, from 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 the from the nursing station so that we can prevent them from falling a lot or too many ways. We also also make sure we place um risk alert on their on their hand. We provide for them rounds depending on the protocol of the facility you find yourself. It could be one hourly round, it could be 30 minutes round, it could even be 15 minutes with patients who have high acuity. Um we do this thing to make sure that they are in a safe environment now for those who have seizures they are also at risk for four when they have seizure now for seizure we want to prevent them from injury that becomes our priority for seizure we have few priorities the first thing is our priority becomes their medications 
if there are no seizure patient we want to make sure they get their medication regularly the second one we want to do is we want to make sure they cannot fall they should be safe safety should be provided in the environment around them if they have anything like furniture when they having seizure we want to take those things away another thing is we want to do a review for them after the seizure we want to know the timing how long it lasted for the duration what were they doing before they had a seizure what they did after they after they arose from the seizure now we want to ask them what happened that you had seizure what was you what were you doing or uh, did you have aura a u r a aura is uh like a feeling it could be a feeling it could be like a, a, a sensation that you're going to feel before you had before you had the seizure so they want to describe the aura there are some individuals who have aura before seizure so individuals would not have aura and they will have seizure they will not remember what was what they were involved in though before the seizure that means they do not have aura now we want to make, make sure for seizure we want to make sure by their bare side people who have seizure want to always have O2 machine at the bedside because seizure disorder when a seizure lasts more than five minutes it becomes a medical emergency because at that point in time see when there's a seizure the brain is not receiving O2 in seizure problem so because the brain lacks the brain is being deprived from O2 the brain cannot label all O2 for more than five minutes so there will be brain cells damage there will be brain damage. So because they are having a system of more than five minutes, we all want to have O2 by then. But since you last for this long, there's a person who all want to have O2 by their bare side when they have seizure. We also want to make sure they also have um uh aura that equipment to, to, to help them suction. Suctioning suctioning machine by the bare side. Wanting to have also like a um IV access. Those things are important by the bare side. They should have oral airway equipment. They should have the bare sirens and the bare padding. The pad of the bear should be available. The bare sirens need to be padded with cloth, with soft, with, with cushion, that they cannot scrape their arm or their body on the bare sirens. Those are things that you need to do for patients who have seizure. We want to also make sure we inspect their environment regularly for anything in the environment in the room that might cause them to have injury due to this due to the seizure when, when they have a seizure episode we want to make sure we ambulate them and transfer them to a better and safe place in the midst of the seizure to avoid them being hurt more while they are having the seizure episode we want to advise all caregiver and family to not restrain the patient during the seizure episode we cannot restrain if they have on tight clothing our goal become to loosen those clothes. now i'm going to this tonight because you don't know them you know them but get in the end class when a patient has seizure they will ask you what would the nurse do and they will have these most common things to do by by you in the end class and then they will also have other things that you're supposed to do now guess what you are not a doctor now when the patient is in seizure you put in the best nursing management to help the patient rather than medical management because there are things we can do at that point in time the lowest one is what you're supposed to do in the anger they will always put the hard thing to do the lowest thing to do and they'll put something that is out of your range so look at the 
question in the anchor and know what to pick that, that will suit that particular case scenario. You want to make sure also when a client has seizure, um, these are all seizure precaution. You want to assess the client at risk for seizure with ambulation. Like I said, uh, you advise them to not restrain the client. If they, if they have seizure and they are in a on a high or bed or chair, they should be lower to the floor. Now, then during the seizure, in the seizure, we want to steal the patient. We never leave a we never leave a patient in seizure. We never do that. In the end class, they will give you a case scenario that will look so unique that you will need to leave the patient, the patient now. It's wrong. When someone is in seizure, we do not leave the scene. We stay there and call for help and monitor them until help arrives. You want to make sure you maintain a patent airway. We cannot put thumb blades in the patient's mouth anymore. That is old-fashioned. It is not allowed, but we can help them to walk to suction. So if they are having seizure and they are having tonic seizure and they are having salivation, they are having foam from their mouth, we can help them to walk to suction. To, 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 to suction. And that's why we always want to have suctioning equipment by the patient's bedside who has a seizure. We can help them to walk suction from the side of the jaw but we cannot put thumb blade in their mouth because they are biting their tongue or biting their teeth. We can't do that anymore. Now, we should note the duration. Why? Because if it lasts for more than five minutes, it becomes an emergency. We should, we should, we, we should look at the duration, the seizure, the sequence, what they are having. Now, that's why when you're somewhere, that when you work, when you work at a nursing home or at a place where they have seizure patients, and when you call EMS, oh yeah, I have a patient that has a seizure. When they come, they will ask you, how long it has been? How did he have the, is, is he, is, was the body jerking? Was he just having like a, a muscle spasm? Or was he having tonic-tonic movement? Because they want to know which one, because based upon the kind of seizure the patient is having, that's how the treatment can be made available. So they will ask those questions. You got to provide for the patient or comfort, understanding, about their environment and the condition, they will document the seizure with any feature or aura that came prior to the seizure. And you got to tell about the injury that occurred. Um, and so now, seclusion and restraint, um, they are required to be in seclusion room or in restraint um, if they become very harmful to themselves or to others. In general, seclusion and restraint can be used for just a short period of time, meaning the shortest possible time. And it should be after when other less restrictive methods have failed. We've done all the verbal uh, redirections and everything has failed. Then our last means that we can use should be seclusion or restraint. Restraint and seclusion cannot be the first thing we use to calm down situation in the hospital or with health with our patients. Um, for the for the patient, um, they might request voluntary seclusion. A patient can walk and say, "Oh, excuse me, nurse, uh, I don't feel safe with myself. Can I go into the in, into the choir room?" Yes, that is why voluntary seclusion. Now, for voluntary seclusion, they choose to go there by themselves, and they can also choose to leave without any problem. If a patient asks you that I, I feel unsafe. I'm having suicidal ideation. I want to hurt people. I'm having HI, homicidal ideation. I want to kill somebody. Can I, can I go to the choir room? 
That is, they ask about themselves. They got to, they will walk to the choir. And if at any point you say, okay, I feel better, can I come out? Yes, come out. We do not say no because when they're voluntary, that becomes voluntary seclusion. Now, in a case where a patient did not ask, and we see them engage into hurting other people, in that situation, we have to go hands on on them and move them to a safe environment. Either we restrain them or we seclude them in a particular room. That means they cannot come out according to their will, but unless we see that they are safe, then we can ask them out. So they have voluntary and involuntary seclusion. Now, um, restraints could cause complications that like they got patient on restraint could have pneumonia as complication. They could be in restraint and they could aspirate their own saliva and other things, which could cause aspirational pneumonia, which is possible. It could also cause incontinence. They could remain in a restraint and pass urine on themselves, willingly or knowingly. They could also have pressure ulcer due to the restraint. Those are all complications that they might experience when they are having restraint. So when we restrain a patient, there are guidelines we must meet according to the federal laws, according to the state law, or according to our institutional policy. Those guidelines must be met to keep our patients safe and to keep us safe too when we are licensed to work or to provide care for our patient. Um, we cannot restrain a patient because we are watching a movie in the morning, 6 or 3 a.m. in the morning, and the patient is shouting, so we restrain. No, it is inconvenient. We cannot do that. We cannot provide restraint or seclusion for the convenience of the staff. It is unreliable. It is not allowed. It is not, it is not permissible. We cannot restrain because we want to pay back a patient for, for his or her bad, bad deeds. Like, as a punishment, we cannot run a restraint for that. We cannot run a restraint if the client, uh, if the client is unstable or mentally unstable, physically unstable, we cannot carry on restraint. Client who cannot tolerate the, 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 the uh, 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 seclusion rooms, we cannot put it in seclusion. Client who having certain phobia, we cannot put it in a room and lock them up. They, mo they will have panic attack and they might die from that particular fear of being in, a, in an empty place or in an enclosed place. Now, restraint should never interfere with the treatment. Patient should not be restrained. Then we, uh, we cannot we say, okay, he did not receive a med because he was on he was he was in a restraint. No. Restraint should never ever interfere with patient's treatment. Restraint should not restrict uh, it should not restrict the patient's movement. So when patient is unrestrained, they should be able to move their joint, move their body parts to help them to be more comfortable. We cannot use a restraint that the patient cannot move their body part. It is not allowable. Restraint should um, it should be easy, easy to remove or change. We have to do a restraint where the, 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 the ties of the restraint are loosely tied. Not with, not you squarely tie them that you cannot remove them. It is not, you can't do that. It's going to cause chaos. It's going to cause complications that, that might even harm the patient. Now, we only do restraint if all other less means that we use to calm the patient down, if all other means fail, then we can use a restraint. Um, we can also use a restraint. Uh, for, okay, for restraint, restraint cannot be done like a standing order. 
a restraint cannot be a standing order. Cannot be standing order. What is standing order? Standing order in a hospital are orders that just ongoing is perpetual. Meaning, take for example, if a patient has temperature of above 104 degree Fahrenheit, give them uh, Tylenol 500 milligram. This become a standing PRN order. Meaning, it is it is a standing, it's just there. Now, um, or it cannot be like a PRN order. PRN order that the patient has this condition restraint. No, restraint must be if, it, if the patient has a restraint order, it should be renewed. It should be done when the patient has the behavior. If, if the patient stop having the behavior, we should get new order if new behavior arises. Take for example. I had a patient, uh, I remember some weeks ago, I was working in, uh, on the behavioral unit, and this patient began banging his head in his room on the wall. I went to him, I talked, talked to him, he didn't listen to me. He came out, he, he came to attack one of the staff. We rushed to him, we had to restrain him, restrain him and took him to the seclusion room. After five minutes, now I had called the doctor and gotten the order. After five minutes, after he, I, I took him out, less than two minutes, while walking away, he punched another, another staff. We had to go back to restrain. Now, those are two different restraint orders. Not because I got the first uh, restrain him, meaning when he did the second, the, when he did the, the, the second aggression, I should go ahead and restrain. No, that second aggression was different restrain. So restrain order cannot be perpetual. So if one order ends the behavior, and there's a new behavior arising, we need to get a new order for that new behavior. Now, we can also implement restraint without order as nurses. Take for example, once upon a time, I want to talk, talk to a patient. While talking to the patient, and he got activated, he threw punches at me, started to punch at me. At that point in time, I will not run to pick the phone and call, to call that doctor, no. I will stay right there and call restraint. And call code on the patient will go ahead and restrain him. Now, after that incident, I should call the doctor to sign that restraint within 24 hours. So it should be if even we did a restraint in the absence of doctors as nurses, it should be signed within 24 hours after the restraint. And we should review the patient. We should review the case. We should do an incident report about the restraint. We should there are a lot of things you do. That is not important for, for the for the ankle, but this just the main point I want you to understand for the ankles. Now, in restraint, um, like I said, we can obtain restraint by ourselves without prescription. When you when you when you receive restraint order from a doctor or from a healthcare provider, it should include one. It should include the reasons for the restraint. Why was the restraint done? That's the first thing it should include. It should include the reason for the restraint. Number one, there should be the reason for restraint. Number two, there should be the type of restraint used. The type the of restraint used, we have mechanical restraint, we have chemical restraint. It could be through medication or both. There got to be a type of restraint used. Now, we should also look at um, the location of the restraint. 
the restrict location where is it occurring the third thing the fourth thing we look out for the restraint is the behavior the behavior that was exhibited that warranted or that warrants the the restraint we should get these four things within the restraint order we also want to make sure um for individuals for adults for adults a restraint should last not more than four hours for adults adult restraint should not go above four hours. if it go above four hours we're going to loosen the restraint and we'll get new order it cannot go over four hours for adults now for children between nine to 17 years it should be two hours not more than two hours children between nine nine to 17 years uh, it should be two hours and children be below nine years let, let the nine should be one hour so from 12 years uh, from something years above adult is four hours from uh two years from nine years to 12 from for nine to 12 years is two hours for nine years below is one hour so this is what you want to remember for the English for restraint also you want to make sure the doctors may renew this prescription for for restraint with a maximum of 24 hour consecutive consecutive hour any restraint order should not go above 24 hours it should be renewed after that period of time when we restrain a patient we have to make sure we explain the need for restraining the patient and the patient family we have to call the family and call the patient about the restraint after the restraint we have to review the restraint and what led to the restraint we have to ask the patient for every two hours every two hours after in, in, in restraint we have to assess the skin integrity provide skin care according to the facility protocol in some hospital after every one hour after every 30 minutes you provide them food but according, according to the anklets when you have a patient in restraint provide them food and fluid every two hours providing hygiene and other things to check them to check them check their father's sign every two hours do range of motion with them every time use a quick release nut Quick release knot is what you look for in the anklets. Quick release knot. Quick release knot is what we use to tie. To, I'm sorry, to restrain. We don't use the word tie. We use this quick release knot to restrain that we can just pull once and the restraint is loose. Um, we, we want to make sure we um determine the need for restraint the limbs range of motion all those things are necessary when it comes to restraint any question now i'll look at fire safety for just for a short bit fire safety now in fire safety i'm not gonna look at what i'm going to give you a trick in fire safety so you have fire safety arrow a c e raise now this race in fact it means uh arrest for rescue a stands for alarm c stands for contain and e stands for extinguish now 
in the end class they will ask you a question in the end class about this that, that will sound very easy but yes still you might miss it because you, you don't know the technique in it let's say you were a nurse or i'm gonna do is it i'm gonna do the charge nurse i'm gonna do the charge nurse was in the nursing station and he heard an alarm he heard the fire alarm going off he heard the fire alarm what would be the thing what would be the next amadou would do immediately i was standing past, past me and i heard a fire alarm what will he do next they ask that question so you must go in and provide an answer now guess what if you heard the fire alarm the arrest team will rescue is time for alarm meaning alarm has been done already somebody has pulled over the alarm so in the answer they will have a um pull the alarm pull the alarm b will say contain the fire by closing all fire doors c will say extinguish the fire if it is a small fire that can be extinguished and d will say Call nine one one. In this case, don't get confused. We've already pulled this alarm, so this cannot be the correct answer. We already pulled the alarm. After rescue, you pull the alarm. You continue fast. So the net that come in line will be contained fast. So this will be the correct answer. Contain the fiber closing the door because after alarm is C. So you go in and choose C. This works with the anklets. You also see pass P A S S. How to use the fire extinguisher? You pull the pins. You aim at the fire. You sweep side to side. These are things you look at. So when you already pull the pin already, mean this is out. The next thing is the A. You aim at the base of the fire. So this is coming the angle of the light. So remember this strategy in the angle for 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 fire alarm other things. So that is that's about fire. Now another another thing about fire extinguisher. I will talk about this. This is, this is important. Um, these we see these fire extinguishers. There are three kinds of fire extinguishers that one for the anchor. There are three types of fire extinguishers. We have A, B, and C. We have extinguisher A, extinguisher B, and extinguisher C. Now, extinguisher A. Um, we're talking about. You use extinguisher A on things like paper, paper, wood, rags, and other things, and trash. So if you were cooking and there's a fire that got there's a there's a fire that that, that caught the the garbage bag or the garbage or, or the trash can, the trash the the the, the, the trash bags. In that situation, you use extinguisher A for trash, papers. Or let's say the same fire got up on the library, or, or a patient was in the library watching the local medic, uh, medication or in the pharmacy, and where they keep the papers, and there's a fire got up on that place, you go ahead and use extinguisher A because extinguisher A contains chemical that can uh, cut off fire that contains papers, wood, upholstery materials, rags, and other, other trash. Now, extinguisher B is for liquid and gas. This for liquid, liquid, uh, uh, chemicals, and other things like uh, you have um, for uh, 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 like gas fire, like gas, right? Like a filling system got out of fire. We use extinguisher B to cut off the fire when it's a when it's, it doesn't like a a car 
a car, a blaze. We use expression B. Now, expression C is meaning for electric appliances. Let's say, let's say your stove got out fire, or you want to plug your television and fire sparkle, and the building start coming fire. So you use expression. So remember this expression and what to use in them. Any question? Let's take a five minute break and uh, come back at the. Now, uh, we'll start about health promotion and disease prevention. So, traditionally, nurses are those individuals that are supposed to help prevent and prevent diseases and promote health within our environment. Uh, this can be achieved through so many other means, which I'm not concerned about them. I'm concerned about just the main ones that I'm going to look at. Now, um, I'm going to start with a, a routine physical. Routine physical test you do. Now, a routine physical test is supposed to be done um, every one to three years for women and every five years for men to the age 40. So, um, every one to three years for women and every five years for men below the age 40 or between the age 20 to 40 years of age. That's when we do our routine physical for men. So when you are in the age of between the age 20 to, 20 to 40, men will do physical tests every five years. That is the standardized time for physical tests for men. Now for for women, they do that every five sorry, every every one to one to to, to three years. Now, if uh, if you reach if you go above 40 years, it becomes uh, one to one, one to three years for women, and every five years for men from age twenty to forty, and more often after age forty, it will be done more often. It will be done after every year, or after or after every two years after age forty. But between the age twenty to forty, it is done every five years for males, and every one to three years for females. Now, um, for dental, we'll do our dental assessment or dental. We do it every six months. It's Q six months for dental. Now, when it comes to um, TB screening, this can be uh, we can do the TB screening every year. The TB skin test that is the um, PBD can be done every 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 year. We, 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 we do the TB skin test. So TB skin test can be done. Um, every year, so this can be done every year. The TB skin test, the TB skin test is done Q one year. Every every year, this can be done. Now, then, when it comes to um, test to check for your blood pressure, that can be done every two years, or if it is high in the first year, it's done every one year. So that is, you don't have a BP condition, you don't have a high BP, you want to check your BP. It's done at least 
every um every two years or you can do it every year if it was high the previous year so it's done for the blood pressure it's done every two years now then for our bmi our body mass index how like a bmi the bmi it does not have a time but every time you do a routine so every routine visit every routine visit we do the bmi now um you gotta notice just look at it and notice because the they will ask you a patient asked the nurse when can i do my bmi test the, what's the nurse best response a every one year b every two year c every time you make a visit to, to see a doctor do the bmi and d says every four or five years so you gotta know when it can be done now at the age of 20 and above you will start doing your cholesterol after the age 20 you start doing cholesterol and then you will do it every five years so after the age 20 every five years you want to do the blood cholesterol so you do it every five years now in this cholesterol please know about the ldl the low the low density lipoprotein the hdl the heart add high density lipoprotein know about the triglyceride the triglycerides know about the total cholesterol know the levels know how we do what we do to, to bring it down now among this cholesterol this is a good one is the best one it is the one that the body needs to be high it should be above 60. it's the good one because this is from around the heart so your body needs to have more hdl to protect the coronary artery system in the heart hello hello yeah, it's me, Jato. So you say the LDL is the is the good cholesterol? No, the HDL is the good one. The H, the one I put right here, this one right here, not this this one here. The oh. HDL is a good one that needs to be over high. It should be above sixty every time because it is the one that protect the heart from other uh, complications. Okay. Yeah. So know know the know the level of those cholesterol, which which is very good. Now another thing is we do blood sugar, blood glucose test at the age something at age forty. We do blood sugar test, a blood glucose. We start to do our blood sugar test after the age forty. Now that does not mean that you can do it below forty. When you at risk, do it. But if you're not at risk under the age forty, start to do the blood glucose. Now it should be done at least every three years. This should be done every three years meaning the first time you did it it is not you're not in a risky zone you don't have uh, diabetes on war after age 40 do it every three years it, sh it should be repeated every three years now another thing under here is um the visual equity our sight the eighth one is the visual equity now for the visual equity um for the visual equity, let's look at the visual equity. For the visual equity, the VA, V, 
visual visual equity now the visual equity uh this can be done age 40 and under every three to five years when you are below age 40 less than age 40 we do it every three to five years when you are under the age 40 every three to five years now when you are above the age 40 to 65 between the age 40 to 65 years of age you do it every two years it's done every two years now every every two years if you are above the age 65 for visual equity then it needs to be done every year after the age 65 so you will do it here every year meaning q1 year or q or q every year meaning you are doing every one year after the age 65 remember these things very well and uh, just in case then for the hearing equity um it is done uh every time you go to the clinic they do a hearing equity test then you have um skin assessment for our skin assessment it is done every three years skin assessment the skin assessment it is done every three years below the age 40 um and then it's done every year after age 40. so it becomes every year after after age 40. it's done every year after age 40 for the skin class um for colorectal screening it is done uh for individuals between the age 50 50, 50 and 75 um it can be done every five years they can do it uh, using a simodoscopy so colorectal screening from the age 50 to 75 it is done every five years using sigmoidoscopy um we can do that or we can use every 10 years if we use if we do colonoscopy colonoscopy every 10 years um after the age 76 to do it you must consult the doctor any question then we look at uh breast and cervical cancer let's start with breast cancer now breast cancer for breast cancer between the age 20 to age 39 between the age 20 to 39 years of age for breast cancer we make sure we do the pop smell every three years we'll do a pop smell the pop smell every three years for breast cancer the public the the pap smell is done the pap nicola test can be done now between the age 
30 to, to 65, between the age 30 to 65, um, at that point in time, we can do the pap smell and the HPV every five years. We'll do the pap smell under here, the pap smell and the HPV every five years. Every five years. Now, uh, for the breast cancer, after, I'm sorry, I, I can't make a mistake. So we do it between uh, the pap smell. This is correct. The pap smell is done every every pap, every three years between the age twenty to thirty nine. We do a pap smell for the breast cancer. Now for the same breast cancer. Um, we want to do um, annually after the age 40. I'm sorry. So here, take this out. It is done annually. After the age 40, it is done annually. Meaning every year we're going to do it. It is done annually after the age 40. Now in this, in this age, we can do the mammogram. Yes, I'm sorry. So the, the mammogram can be done only after age 40. That's what I want to talk about. So you, you do the mammogram after age 40 um, and above. It can be done every year. But below age 30, below age 40, we can do mammogram. Just so you know. So mammogram cannot be done at below age 40 until you reach age 40 and above. That's when we do the breast the breast cancer test every year with the mammogram. And uh, please look at the, the procedure mammogram. We look at it when we're doing cancer. We'll see it in message. So please read on mammogram. How you do it. Why the nurse management in doing mammogram. Why the do's it. What you cannot do. Read about it. It's in the book. Look up mammogram. Now, then we're talking about the cervical cancer. Now, for cervical cancer screening, uh, between... For the cervical cancer, um, between now between the age twenty one to twenty nine, we do the pap smell. So between the age 21 to 29 years, we'll do the pap smell. The pap smell for cervical cancer. Um, between the age, so that, that, that can be done every three years. So it'll be done every three years. Yeah, so this is why I'm, I'm mistaking the root over there. This is done every three years um, for the pap smell between age 21 to 30. Now between the ages, uh, 30 to 65, to 65 years of age, we go ahead and do the pap smell, do the HPV test every every five years. So now we'll do uh, the, the, the pap smell under here and the HPV test, the hemopapilloma virus test, is going to be done every five years for individuals between the ages 10 to, to, to 65.
Yeah. Then, for men, test for men would do the PSA. For men, for men, would do the PSA. Now, the PSA is a test. It's called PSA. It is the prostate-specific antigen. Prostate-specific antigen, the PSA. Now, this PSA test, it is done for men every year after the age 50. It is done after the age 50 years of age. It's done Q1 year, meaning it's done annually. After the age 50, you do it every year. Now, um, we'll consult the doctor if it should continue after 76 If a male is above 76 years of age, before it is done, we we'll to consult the doctor. Now, in the PSA, is for prostate cancer. Um, we do the PSA. Now, there is a procedure. Um, we'll look at it in mass. This is fundamental. But better still, if a test is nearer, look up BPH, benign prostate hypertrophy. Look at TURP procedure. Look at this procedure and look at PSA. Look at the three of them. It's for male. They are regular. So you know the level of the PSA in men. Look at the BPH, the procedure, everything for, for, for top. Look at it and how the procedure is carried on. What are the measurements? So we'll look at head and neck. And now let's see if we can end here for the day. If we can complete head and neck. Now, head and neck is very important because there are a lot of things on the head. The eyes, the ear, the nose. To examine everything, it will take a little bit of time. So let's see whether we can look at them and complete it today. Then we might have a class tomorrow. But I will let the class know tonight or tomorrow, early in the morning, if we have a class tomorrow to complete some of these things. Um, there's a portion here. I want to go into it. I usually skip them and ask you to read it, but I want to go into it because I feel like it's very important when it comes to age developmental milestone. Uh, what are the vaccines for children between zero to two years, zero to one year, two to three years? The, the kind of a play that we're involved into. I want to go over that at an extra time tomorrow. If time permits us now the head and neck um the head and neck it is important to look at the, the patient's core their face their neck the ears the nostrils the nose and other parts that that serve as a medium to live for those area um the head and neck you have the lymph nodes the gland the thyroid gland the trachea all those things are important to look at in there um I'm going to look at the test we can do for those part of the body that need specific attention. Um, on, on, on all these body parts, you got to master the cranial nerve. You got to master the cranial nerve. These cranial nerves, they are important in examinations. Know the 12 cranial nerves and their function. Know which cranial nerve controls the eye movement, which one controls the smell, which one controls uh, the face. Know them. Now, I'm going to go through these body parts 
and we look at which chronal nerve controls them. Um, now, let's take for example cranial nerve five. Cranial nerve five is called a trigeminal nerve. CN five. Cranial nerve five. IV five is called the trigeminal nerve. Now, this trigeminal nerve, um, it functions in strength and sensation. It assesses the strength and sensation. Um, then you have cranial nerve 7, which is the facial nerve. It assesses the facial symmetry. So, cranial nerve 7, CN7, V2, is called the facial nerve. This controls, it looks at the symmetry. If you are doing assessment, you want to watch somebody, somebody having like a facial pass or, 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 or some facial problem, facial drooling, you do, you, you test for the cranial nerve uh, or, 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 or seven. That tells how the face is symmetrical. The left side of the face is symmetrical to the right of the face. That tells you that about, about, about the face. So then you have cranial nerve um, 11. Cranial nerve 11 is called the spinal accessory nerve. So CN11, CN11 is called the accessory nerve. This accessory nerve, it is meant to assess our the strength of our shoulder. So if a doctor stands behind you or a nurse stands behind you and asks you, I'm going to rest my palm on your both shoulder and I want you to move your shoulder or, or shrug your shoulder. That shrug of the shoulder, you are testing for cranial nerve 11. So that's how the question will come in the ankles. Um, the patient had a shoulder fracture and the doctor wants to check for the nerve that controls the shoulder. Which method can be used to test or which cranial nerve will be used to test the shoulder strength? Cranial nerve 1, cranial nerve 2, They'll have all these listed on the ankle. You have to choose the correct one. So know them very well. Now I will start with the face. Um, cranial, there are two cranial nerves that, that controls the face. Now, cranial nerve five and cranial nerve seven control our face. Cranial nerve five and seven controls our face. So when we do those tests, we are checking for our facial nerve. So let's remove that current nerve 5 and current nerve 7 controls the face. Now, this, these are cranial nerves. There are, uh, if there is asymmetry, you want to note the feature of the eye providing the asymmetry of the face. Sometimes we can have uh, some eye condition, like you have like an asymmetropia, you have like a different eye condition, where sometimes you're going to have one eyelid is opening wider. And the other one is not as wide open compared to the first one. That becomes some facial asymmetry. So now you have on someone smile, you see the mouth being twisted. So the two lips, those are those muscles of the face, like 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 the bustinators, are not aligned because they are not aligned. When the patient laughs, there will be there will be twisting on one side of the face. Those are how that, that's how we check for this facial symmetry. Now, um, so we have two tests for every nerve. Every nerve has a motor test and a sensory test. Now, 
the motor is about the movement of the nerve. The sensory is about sensation, how to feel. That's what I'll ask you. Are you feeling ting are you feeling tingling or numbness in your neck, in your palm, in your back? Because those tinglings and numbness are signs of neurological problems. So you test with the strength of the muscle contraction by asking them to clinch her teeth while you palpate the masseter and the temporal muscle. So to test for coronary, coronary five, to test for CN5, which is, which is the facial nerve, you ask the patient to clinch their teeth together strongly like this, and you palpate the masseter and the, the temporal area. You rub your hand, you palpate those areas. If there is a nerve damage within those areas, you will, they will have that feeling of some funny feelings there or some tingling or some numbness within those areas. And that's how we check for current nerve 5 when it comes to this nerve to, to test them. So current nerve 5 controls the face and we check the masseter. We check the masseter and the temporal. The temporal and the masseter muscles are checked for facial problem, and then we can also check the temporal mandibular joint. The temporal mandibular joint is the joint that when you eat in the food or when you open your mouth, between here that up and down movement at the at the side of the jaw, there you have the temporal mandibular joint. Here. So you can also check it by palpating it. That can help you to check um to check for um to check for movement around it so we test for the strength of muscle contraction by asking our client to clinch their teeth together while we palpate the temporal muscles the masseter muscles and that of the temporal mandibular joint of the face when you do that you are testing for the motor movement or the motor function of the cranial nerve five now, if you check for the sensory, you will use a light. You will test, uh, sorry, you will use a light touch. You will test it by doing a light touch, by having the client close their eyes while you touch their face gently with a cotton swab. And you will ask them how to feel the touch. So you will take a light cotton, close your eyes, and you will tell me which part of your face this cutting is touching and you will touch the forehead if they have facial nerve damage this touch would not be fair it's okay if, the, if, if, if their nerve are good okay you are touching my forehead touching my my right jaw my left jaw my chin my nose my eyelid that's how we check for our uh, sensation for cranial nerve five Now, for coronary 7, we do it by having the client smile, frown, or puff their cheek. So, coronary 7 is about this facial nerve, the, the bocinator, the zygomaticus. All these facial nerves are what we test for when we test for coronary 7. So, when we do that, we end the smile, smile, then you smile. The two muscles up here will go apart, meaning it is okay. You laugh. You, you puff up, you frown. So we'll do that these facial muscles are all good. Now, in the instance where you are smiling and these muscles cannot move, or you are puffing up and these muscles cannot move, 
then you are having a facial nerve problem. Then we can pick that up. That's what happened in the case of cranial nerve 7. So in this nerve, in short, you want to know this viral nerve, know what they represent, and know how do we do physical assessment for this nerve. It is important to know these things in the end class. So you go ahead, you look at cranial nerve 1, olfactory, or you look at or, or, or this, the cochlear nerve, the abdosins, the, uh, the, 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 the of oropharyngea. Uh, of, of you know what these nerves are, know what tests we can do to assess them. Every nerve has to, it has a motor function, it has a sensory function. Know how do we test for motor function and know how do we test for sensory function. It is in, you might not find it in the book, look up them on the internet, you're going to find them. Then we have the neck. For the neck, what is important for the neck? is range of motion the neck now for the neck know that, know, know that, that, that the neck can have a good range of motion in a cyclic motion clockwise and in a counterclockwise cycle or in a counterclockwise motion the neck should not have any problem with that now um the shoulders is being it can be assessed when you check for cranial nerve like i talk about cranial nerve 11 uh, cranial 11 is the, is the accessory nerve. This cranial nerve, you check the shoulder. And by doing that, you stand behind the patient and rest your two palms on the both shoulders and you ask them to move the shoulder up and down. If they can do that with a little force being pressed on the shoulder, meaning it is, if they cannot do that, meaning it is not good, meaning they are having some accessory nerve problems. Then you have all, all this leaf noise on the body. The occipital leaf nerve, that's not really important for the English, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, then you have the thyroid gland, which, which we discuss in Mercer, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going into that. Then I go to the eyes. So the eye is of more concern to me. What are the tests we do for the eyes and what we do when, when those tests are being carried out for the eyes? Now, for the eyes, um, I will talk about the eyes has structures, internal and external structures, which I'm not concerned about for the ankles. Also, you can look that up in your Sunders book. Um, the eyes contain pathways, that is the visual pathways. The eyes contain visual fields that we use to gaze or look around us. The eyes contains extraocular movement, and the eye contains reflexes that we look at also. Now, I'm concerned about the abnormal front of the eyes. Now, the red reflex. At birth, the child must have the red reflex. An absence of the red reflex at birth indicates eye problem. An absence of the red reflex indicates eye problem or eyes problem. Now, what is important here is, um, I will start with uh, visual equity. In visual equity, we use the Snelling chart to do visual equity, to measure someone's visual equity. Now, in visual equity testing, we can also use um, the Rosenbaum chart. The Rosenbaum chart. Rosenbaum chart can be used to check visual equity. Now, 
in visual algorithm, we always have two numbers. We have the upper number and the lower number. The higher this number, the worse the eye condition. So the, the lower this number, the good the eye condition. So the number up here is the good eye. Just remember that it's a good eye number. This number represents the good eyes. This number down here represents the bad eyes. Now, um, another thing under here is we have a test that is done for color blindness. So if we cannot see color to, to recognize color, we do a color test, which we call the Ishihara test. The Ishihara test can be done to check for color blindness. Remember this very well, color blindness can help us diagnose color blindness by doing the Ishihara test. I-S-H-I-H-A-R-A, Ishihara test can determine color blindness when we go for eye test. Um, the Snelling chart is mainly used um, the Snelling chart can be used mainly to screen for myopia. Myopia, um, meaning the person has impaired far vision. So this chart can be used to check for myopia. Now, if you have myopia, meaning you cannot see from distance, you will not see short sight. When someone says you are myopic, in the term is abusive because meaning you shut meaning meaning you don't think far. Your mind is not is not wide in thinking. You are very narrow minded. So this myopia means you are shut so that you, you don't see from distance. So this snarling chart can be used to, 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 to diagnose myopic condition of the eyes. Then the opposite of myopia is hyperopia. Hyper Ropia, meaning you can see from distance, from long distance, but you, do, but you cannot see from short distance. Then we have um for the so for the eyes, um we also have the extraocular movement of the eye, the eyes EOM. Some will call eyes EOM the extraocular movement of the eye, the E. O M meaning the extra ocular extra ocular movement of the eyes. The EOM. Now the EOMs for the eyes. Um, the EOMs we use a pen light to test for the extra ocular. We use a pen light. We use a pen light. Or the light of the ophthalmoscope can be used to check for the extraocular movement of the eyes. While they are correct, we put, put the light in your eyes, move the light around, and we we'll ask you to follow your, the light of your eyes without moving your head. That's how we check for the extraocular movement of the eyes. Um, we can check for these eyes. We have um, we have four different nerves that controls. Uh, four or sorry, six, six, six nerves of the eyes. One, two, three, four, five. Yes, yeah, six nerves control the eyes movement. Let's look at the six nerves 
the six current that I control the eye movement. I control the eye. So the six nerves are one, um, cranial nerve two, CN two, which is the optic nerve, controls the eye also. It is the eye's nerve that talk about visual equity, VA. How well you see things from distance. It is done by cranial nerve two, which is the optic nerve, the visual equity. Now, the second nerve that controls the eyes is the cranial nerve 3. Cranial nerve 3 is called the oculomotor nerve. This oculomotor nerve, particularly, it controls for us um, extraocular muscles, but they are three in numbers. They are cranial nerve 3, cranial nerve 4, and cranial nerve 7. I'm sorry, six, I mean six. So current nerve three, number four, and current nerve six controls the EOM, the extra ocular eye movement. Now, and current nerve four is commonly called the trochlear nerve. This is called this is called the trochlear nerve. And current nerve five is called and nerve six is called the adduction. So all these three nerves control the extraocular eye movement, the EOMs. So they are joined the cord EOM. That is, if you're standing like here, and so you sling your eyes upward to look up the sky or the ceilings, while you're looking at, while your head is faced straight upward, meaning your extraocular movement of the eyes are intact. So that's why they will either move the pin like in your eyes left or right, up and down or diagonally, to know that these eye movements are correct. If they are not correct, you will know just by seeing that. Um, another thing is also, then we have um, cranial nerve, um, cranial nerve two also, cranial nerve two, the optic nerve can also check for visual fields. This can also check for our visual fields. Cranial nerve two. The visual fields can also, um, they will also have like a current nerve 3, the ocular motor. This current 3 ocular motor can also check for the corneal light reflex, or it can also check for, I'm not ready here, it checks for the corneal light reflex. It also, it also search for us, it also search for the pupillary eye movement. The pupillary eyes movement meaning when you are in the light or you are in the darkness how your eyes will dilate and constrict to adjust to other light or darkness is being controlled by current nerve 3 in the anchor they will ask you the the, the the eyes dilatation and constriction can be achieved with which cranial nerve so you have noticed cranial nerve by, by heart for the anklets any question Now, then, there is something we call Perla. When you were in nursing school, you did neurological assessment for what we call the Perla. So if you're doing Perla in neurological assessment, which is P-E-R-R-L-A, P-E-R-R-L-A, for Perla, 
Now, for this PRA, there are nerves that control the pair. There are two nerves that control pair. Those two nerves are cranial nerve number two and cranial nerve number three. These two cranial nerves control perla. Now, perla means your pupil should be clear. The pupil should be clear. That's one. The E stands for equal. They should be equal. If they are equal, meaning in terms of numerical value, they should be three to seven millimeter. Meaning the two people are equal. If a pupil is above seven, meaning it is dilated. If it is below three, it is constricted. So a normal output is between three millimeter to seven millimeter. Now, another thing is uh, it should be rounded. It should be round. And then it should be reactive. It should be round and reactive to light and accommodation and accommodation so when we are doing our neurological examination we use the word perla the pupil is clear they are equal they are rounded they are reactive to light so that pupil being rounded clear reacted to light as perla that can be achieved with the help of cranial nerve number two and cranial nerve three. The anchor they will ask you, the nurse want to do a neurological examination on the patient and her perla was 100% good. Which nerve determined the perla, the perla being good? It will be cranial nerve three and cranial nerve uh, two. Any question? Now, before we leave, let's look at the last two things before we leave. Um, let's look at the ear. The ear. For the ear, um, the for the ear. For the ear. Um, we have the ear, nose, mouth, and throat. Um, the olfactory, which is cranial nerve one, olfactory controls our sense of smell. Cranial nerve one controls smell. Cranial nerve five, the facial nerve. Cranial nerve eleven, the 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 the, the sorry, cranial nerve five, cranial nerve nine. So cranial nerve five, CN five, and CN. Nine controls um, five and C and, and, and nine control um, our our assesses our taste. So our taste bulb, the glossal pharyngeal assesses our taste. So this one control our taste. The control our taste. How sour? How sweet? How bitter? How salty? Something taste in your mouth is done by this corona. And that's why when you have COVID nineteen. The viral attack these nerves, then you lost your sense of taste. And it attacks cranial nerve one or factual nerve, then you cannot smell. So the viral will attack those nerves that control our senses. Then we lost our senses. That's what happened in the case of COVID-19 problem. Uh, then we have cranial nerve eight. Cranial nerve eight, CN8, V3, it is it controls uh <clears throat> it controls our 
auditory area. That is our hearing. So we assess for, for hearing. We'll test a crayon level 8. Then we'll have crayon level 9. So this, this is for hearing. It is the auditory nerve. The auditory nerve. Then crayon nerve. Uh, crayon nerve, which one remain? So crayon nerve um, 11. Sorry, 10. So crayon nerve 10. CN10 is the vagus nerve. Now this vagus nerve, it is mainly controlling uh, our mouth, our palate, and our gag reflex. So the vagus nerve controls the gag reflex. So when you do a surgery, and we are testing to see where the gag reflex has returned, for you to start taking food, food by mouth, we test that nerve, which is the current nerve, uh, or 10, which is the vagus nerve. It tests for the gag reflex. This is testing for the gag reflex which is very important post-surgery then we also have cranial nerve um nine excess for like i said it's a glossopharyngea excess for this palate then we have cranial nerve 12 which is uh cnx2 this is what we call the hypoglossal nerve Hypoglossal. Now, this hypoglossal nerve, it is what we refer to as the cranial nerve uh, 12. It assists for our tongue strength and movement. It assists our tongue, our tongue strength, and our tongue movement. That's what happening for cranial nerve, uh, for cranial nerve 12. Any question? Then I will look at uh, quickly. We look at um, we look at the last portion, which is the the ear. There are two tests I'll look at here that we've done for the day. Um, the ears. We look. We look to hearing. So hearing, when it comes to hearing, um, we talk about want to assess auditory, want to do auditory screening. So we do the whisper test. So you do the whisper test. You stand behind the patient's ear or behind the patient, and you whisper something in the ear, and they repeat what you whisper in the ear. Hey, what's your name? So they repeat, Hey, what's your name? If they can repeat that, they have um good hearing the, so, so they will close one ear you whisper in the other ear or you close the left ear whisper in the right ear and or close the right ear whisper in the left ear other, other of them is fine and they repeat for you what they were saying you always stay at least one to two feet away from them for the whisper test so the whisper test the whisper test the nurse will stand one to two feet away from the patient and whisper something in the ear and they'll repeat it or they could stand 30 to 60 centimeter away for this patient uh for um in this uh when they're doing, doing this now then we have the rind test now the rind test 
and the Weber test are the two tests you want to look at mainly. The Rhine test. In the Rhine test, we are testing for conduction. In the Rhine test, we are testing for air and bone conduction. In this Rhine test, we are testing for air conduction, which is um, AC and testing for bone conduction, which is in common term BC. Now, in the AC and bone, uh, in the AC and the BC conduction test, we just call the Rhine test. We will use um, the mastoid bone. So the mastoid bone is used to test to do this test. We place a toning fork. We're using a toning fork, a toning fork. We'll vibrate this toning fork. It looks like this. It, look, it looks like a wire. It comes in like a aluminum metal. We strike the toning fork and we place it on the mastoid bone, on the mastoid bone m-a-s-t-o-i-d on the mastoid bone is where we place the tuning fork now the tuning fork is placed on the mastoid bone have the client to tell you when he stops hearing the sound of that vibration now um so for the running test the mastoid bone is the bone behind the ear there's the mastoid bone now you strike, you strike uh, this tuning fork. You will strike it like this. You tap on it. It will make a sound, a vibration. It will be like one that disturbing vibration sound. You place it on the master bone like this. You will place it on the master bone. And the patient will hear that vibration. It will be so loud in their ears. Why it is placed on the master bone. Now, it is placed there, and you ask them to tell you when they stop hearing that vibration. So, at the point it is placed there, you start to check the time. And the point they tell you, I have stopped hearing, or I no longer hear the vibration of this tuning fork, you mark that time down. Take, for example, um, Take for example, if um, it started, we, we struck the tuning fork and we place it on the master bone at 710, and they were hearing it up to 711 mini, it took them one mini to stop hearing it. So that, that was one mini, or we say 60 seconds. That becomes the time for that. Now that becomes the bone conduction. So the master is the bone. So when we place it on the master bone at this point, so we are checking for bone conduction. So the time it is placed on the master bone is the beginning time. The time it ends, the stop here the sound is the end time. That is the time we read here. It's time it started, time it ends. So how long it lasted for the duration? is what we are concerned about. 
that becomes the duration, 60 seconds. Now, the next thing gonna happen is, then we do um, the air conduction. Now, for the air conduction, we will place the tuning fork in front of the ear canal. So after they stop hearing the sound here, the same tuning fork will be placed in front of the ear pinna. Just it should not touch the ear, just in front of the pinna. And then you still hear the vibration. You still be hearing that sound of vibration. You be hearing the ear, ear. Now, the time it is placed in front of the ear, we mark the time. Let's say it will place about seven. 12. It remains there and they will keep hearing the sound. When they stop hearing the sound, they tell us, let's say they stop hearing the sound at 7.15. Meaning, this lasted for three minutes. So the, the, this was three, this was three minutes. So in three minutes, they stop hearing the sound. So placing it in front of the ear, it becomes air conduction, AC. When we place it on, on the ear or on the master boom, it was BC because it was boom conduction. That lasted for one minute. When we place it in front of the ear pinna or the ear oracle, it lasted for three minutes. That becomes air conduction. So our answer is going to be AC is equal to three minutes, while BC is equal to one minute. Now, this become what do we do now in the rhyme test in this rhyme test um ac is always longer than bc in the normal rhyme test in the normal rhyme test in the normal rhyme test meaning it is normal it should be ac is longer than bc if you did this test and you got this answer Meaning the person ear is good. But at any point in time, if BC comes before AC, meaning BC, meaning the person have an impairing ear, uh, hearing impairment. So in this case, let's see whether it is, it is bigger. The AC is what? AC is three minutes. So AC here is three minutes. And BC here is what? One minute. Is it correct or not? So AC is greater than BC meaning the person had a good hearing. They, they have they have no hearing problem. Now in the case where we did the two tests, and then we had the AC to be three minutes, and the BC was four minutes. Meaning it will be in this form. Meaning we will have the AC less than the BC, which is wrong. So meaning the person has hearing problem. But in the normal findings, AC should always be greater than BC. So AC should always be greater than BC. This is a normal and a perfect hearing or hearing. AC must be higher than BC. If AC is not higher than BC, the person has a hearing problem. So meaning the number of time we got to hear AC. It should always be higher than the motor going to hear BC. So AC and BC testing falls under the Rhine test in conductor hearing testing. Any question on this? Then we move to the next test, which is called the Weber test. Now for the Weber test, 
the Weber test in this Weber test um, it's just simple we use the same tuning fork we strike this tuning fork we strike it and we place it on the head it is struck and it is placed on the client head on the top of the head and we ask them do you hear the sound vibrating in both ear yes so tell me which ear the sound is heard more or louder my red ear oh i hear the sound louder on my red ear than my left ear meaning the left ear has a problem if they can hear the sound equally on both ears meaning the both ears are good if they hear it lesser on the red ear and more on the left ear meaning the left ear is good and the red ear is not good that's about the Weber test and this test can we do this test to, to, to test for cranial nerve eight. Any question? So we will stop here for today, and uh, I will announce what I'm going to have a class tomorrow to look at uh, the various age group and. Uh, different developmental achievement to get through the line if we do i'll let you know tonight or tomorrow in the morning